Hey there, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that today is not a typical episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show. John and I are collaborating on a longer episode today, but don't worry, we'll be back to our normal 5-10 to minute short form shows next month. Because in the meantime, we are going to be looking at every single Great American Bash that has uh, ever aired on pay-per-view or TV. With that said, good morning and welcome to the July 4th episode of the Daily Wrestling News Show, where we are on a mission to teach, learn, and remember the history of professional wrestling with everyone that wants to join us. My name is Ryan Joy. I'm joined by John DeCani. John, happy 4th of July, and uh, it's a great day to kick off the Great American Bash rewatch series. That's it. Happy birthday, America. Let's talk some wrestling. You bet. You bet. That kind of just worked out for us, you know. So, <laughs> you know, July was obviously the month to, to watch all the Great American Bash uh, episodes. And so these are going to be longer form. And it's going to take us all the way through the whole end of the month. So we won't be doing our uh, our normal short episodes until next month. We are going to continue to do our Monday night, uh, Monday night Raw rewatch from 1995. So each Monday we'll have... Uh, an episode keyed in on that. So there you go. So the Great American Bash 1988 is what we're starting with. The 1987 show was on closed circuit. And really prior to 88, it was more of a Great American Bash tour than it was a Great American Bash single event. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're in. Uh... They're in the famous Baltimore arena where you have been. I have not. Uh, you know, that building, the attendance is listed as 14,000. <clears> early in the show, when they have the lights on and blaring early on in the show, the building looks bigger. Now, having been in the building, is, is it uh, just deceptive or is there, is it, it almost looks like one wall there isn't stands. So is it kind of like a three sided arena, if you will? Uh, well, I th- no, I mean, I th- it's a. Uh... The arena is full, but often with these events, they uh, like with the Raw or SmackDown t- these days, they only use like the three sides because the stage covers the whole fourth side. Gotcha. Yeah, so yeah. it's, a, it's a, not having a big Tron. I, you know, I just I kind of exactly. like there was times later on in the evening where you looked and it was like, oh, that's just like a blank wall back there. So okay, you know, it's one. It, let me just look. What is the capacity of? I don't know what they even call it today. It's a uh, the Royal Farms Arena. What is the capacity of the Royal? This is interesting radio. Um, <laughs> let's see. 14,000 is the listed capacity for the Royal Farms Arena, yeah. uh, which it is certainly actually, so loud. actually today it's called the CFG Bank Arena. Uh, so since I moved away so. from Maryland, it, you know, three years ago, it has gone through a new sponsorship. But that's why it's easier to refer to it by the old classic name of the Baltimore that's Arena right. before there was sponsorship and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, so 14,000 is the capacity. And it, maybe we don't know what the what, what the actual attendance was. That 14,000 number you quoted, I saw that as well on Wikipedia. But I don't have, like, an old newsletter from 88 that I can go back and and look at to make sure. So 14,000 fans or thereabouts, uh, it seems crazy to me that they would have exactly 14,000. Right. Considering, <laughs> you know, you've got 
a floor that you would fill out with people and i guess you would maybe lose some to the to the uh, the entrance way or whatever like that but but like you said no big stage so a capacity crowd at the great american bash it looked pretty full absolutely um you know we're going to hit on some of the some of the great things here jim ross on commentary he's not the lead guy though tony shivani is the lead guy uh for the jim crockett promotions nwa great american bash 88 uh which i'm sure made your uh <laughs> made the the hair on the back of your neck stand right up in uh disappointment <laughs> yeah just listening to tony shivani take the lead and just say some of the dumb things that tony shivani always says and to hear jim ross trying to like shoehorn his way in because and because really ross isn't a color guy usually you have a play-by-play guy and a color guy or at least that's what we've become used to yeah both of these guys are kind of calling a little play-by-play and then ross is kind of putting in a little color and he's looking for spots to actually talk it it it, it comes off sounding a little odd to the ear for someone who grew up through the attitude era where there was a play-by-play and a color guy and you know not just two guys jumping in whenever they felt it was right you know the thing about jim ross though uh is that he is a storyteller he conveys what is happening in front of you and that could be the story of a match it could be move by move which is more play by play i guess um but Jim has always been fantastic at conveying the story to the audience. Where Shivani, he is pretty good at that too, especially the more so today probably than back in 88. So maybe Shivani uh, and Jim are more collaborating on trying to get across the story, especially considering this is a wrestling show. This is not a sports entertainment show. Oh, that is very evident, yes. Yes. Uh, the ring announcer is Gary Capetta, uh, who has a very unique sound that if you kind of are familiar with anything from this era, you hear that Gary Capetta voice. And, and I think it'll kind of, it'll, it'll strike as familiar to your ear. But Yeah, exactly. He's, he's no fink, but you hear him and you, you know, it, it puts you in that era and, as we'll go on to discuss, I'm sure that style, like this is, you know, you're watching southern wrestling if you will yeah now this event comes about four months after uh wrestlemania 4 to kind of give you an idea of where we are in the in the wwf sphere if you were a wwf fan growing up randy savage is champion he just won the tournament um in like what was that like a 15 match show right at wrestlemania 4 absolutely um this one is an NWA show promoted by Jim Crockett Promotions, and it is the final pay-per-view for the NWA promoted by Jim Crockett Promotions because JCP gets acquired by TBS, uh, Turner Broadcast System, in November of this year, so just a couple of months later. So this is the final one. Um, the other thing that's that's really cool about the Great American Bash is this is not, I mentioned before, this is not the first Great American Bash. The Great American Bash kind of started earlier and had been a, a bunch of tours. But in 1987 is when they debuted the first ever use of war games. 
So that's kind of one of the things that is attached to Great American Bash lore is the War Games match. And on this show, the first pay-per-view show, we don't have a War Games match. They tried something a little different, five-on-five cage match that we'll get to. It stunk. Uh, and I don't think we I don't think we ever saw the same thing again. We saw some we've seen some similarities of yeah, things. we saw the triple cage again, but not the ass yeah. backwards uh, way of entering. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's get into it. There was a dark match. Uh Dick Murdoch and Rick Steiner defeated Kendall Wyndham and Tim Horner in 435. So uh, it was truly dark. As far as I know, you can't watch that match. Yeah, I couldn't find it. Yeah. Uh, the first match up is for the NWA World Tag Team Championships. Arn Anderson are defending champions. They're going up against Sting and Nikita Koloff. Anderson and Blanchard are the four horsemen here with J.J. Dillon. There's a 20-minute time limit on this match. Um, and I have talked on this show in, in prior episodes. There was a Hollywood Blondes episode in the month of March where I talked about the NWA World Tag Team Championships. These are confusing because <laughs> the NWA World Tag Team titles, in this case, this this uh, Four Horsemen versus Sting and, Nicole, and Koloff match, are the NWA World Tag Team Championships promoted by Jim Crockett Promotions, uh, Mid the Mid-Atlantic promotion. There were other titles called the NWA World Tag Team titles. Other promotions, there was uh, World Class had NWA World Tag Team t Championships. Uh, so there's, there's a bunch of those. But these titles are the ones that would eventually be come the WCW World Tag Team Championships and then would later be unified with the WWF World Tag Team Championships. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, those titles were retired in 2010. But these titles had a long history going from, uh, you know, back in the, uh, gosh, I don't know when they started. I had it written down someplace. But anyway, they lasted all the way through. And they're not the only ones, but only NWA World Tag Team titles. But they are. it's confusing because there's a lot of those. Sure. And you're talking in terms of lineage there, and obviously that's the right thing to talk about. But as the belt mark, I will say that in terms of aesthetics, these are the blue-strapped uh, tag titles that are kind of synonymous with the Road Warriors. And it's the same design that they would use again at the start of NWA TNA, although, of course, not the same lineage. But if, give your, if you can put yourself back in 2002, 2003, when TNA starts, that's what these belts look like. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, John, the crowd is hot for oh, this match. They yes. are molten, and you can and you can tell why uh, WCW Jim Crockett Promotions would go to Baltimore because, man, when Sting and Koloff came out, and various points throughout the match when a tag was made, I thought that place. You, you would have thought. In modern terms, you would have thought Roman Reigns is wrestling Sami Zayn in Montreal. Like this is this these guys were hot. Yes, this crowd was insane for I mean quality throughout the show, but <laughs> one of my favorite moments of the entire show 
is when Sting gets a hot tag late in this match. He hits a stinger splash, and Tony Schiavone tells us that the crowd literally exploded. <laughs> well, of course, that's Tony Schiavone being Tony Schiavone, but it is one of the biggest pops I've ever heard for a, a stinger splash. Like, you know, I'm not the as I've said before, and I'm sure I'll say multiple times throughout our rundowns here, the uh, the Great American Bash. At this time, I have no exposure to NWA and what would become WCW other than the covers of wrestling magazines. Mommy wouldn't let me buy because there was always somebody bleeding like a stuck pig on the front cover. So I know Ric Flair. I know the Road Warriors. And I know this guy called Sting, but I don't know anything about his career. Holy crap, is he over with these people? Because almost everything he does in this match gets a main event pop. Yeah. And what's crazy is Baltimore is also a WWF town. So these fans in Baltimore, they really know, they really get a lot of wrestling. You know, they double down on their wrestling. For sure. So uh, I was typing notes when Nikita Koloff got a tag and he would go for a run and I had to look up because the crowd was going so crazy. Like I, I just, I was typing my notes and then all of a sudden I hear the, the crowd just boom. And I'm like, Holy crap, what's going on? And it, it was just a hot tag, but um, Nikita Koloff real name, Scott Simpson from Minnesota. Uh, he was brought in as Ivan Koloff's nephew and he never broke character. That story was told through the Tales of the Territory when we watched on uh, on Memphis, uh, to the point where his daughter's birth birth certificate says Lithuania on it. So uh, Koloff, so Nikita Koloff came in in '84, but the world was sort of changing at the time, and the whole idea of the nasty Russian heel was kind of passe by the time this show was coming around. So Koloff actually turned face um, in around 1987, uh, in 86. And then in 87, he was actually on the good guy war games team against the four horsemen uh, at great American bash the previous year. So, so his arc is, is very interesting, but he's super, super over. Yeah. And I guess trying to go for a slightly different visual, uh, he looks very different. Like I almost, it took me a second to figure out who I was looking at because He's he's grown out of flat top at this point, and you know I had to wait for someone to say his name because I had no idea who the hell I was looking at. Yeah, and I think it it really looked like he cut weight too. Um, Not that he was, not that he was uh, heavy. It's just that like he toned way down. You know, like yeah, he he was was like so jacked early in his career, and here he's just he's still big, but he's not the monster that he was. Yeah, yeah, he's not the monster that was not cast in a Rocky movie because he made Sylvester Stallone look too small. Yes, correct. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at one point, Nik- uh, Nik- Nikita Koloff suplexes Tully Blanchard into the ring, you know, with Blanchard on the apron. Uh, and then J.J. Dillon, J.J. J.J. Dillon reaches and pulls Koloff off. So Koloff rolls to the outside. He goes after Dillon, ends up hitting his uh arm and shoulder on the post and then Arnie Anderson 
would reinforce that by driving Koloff back into the post again. And that kind of became the story of the match for a while as we're going after Koloff's arm. Yeah. So that that's kind of the only lull in it. Like they worked that arm what seemed like forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that that became the big the big thing. Uh we get the and uh, right up to the five minute warning, really. We get the five minute warning. The horsemen go to work on Koloff's arm and shoulder the whole time. Anderson goes for what looked to be a Vader bomb. Uh, but Koloff got his knees up and the building exploded again when Sting got the hot tag. Sting runs wild. Uh, he he hits a big press slam on Tully, a bulldog on Arn Anderson. One minute warning. Sting puts the sleeper hold on. We get a Stinger splash, Scorpion death drop, or a Scorpion death lock. And then the clock runs out. Sting and Koloff start celebrating with the belts, but Gary Capetta lets us know that the time limit has expired. It is a draw. Yeah. And Sting and Nikita, they, they walk away from the ring with the belts. Yep. And there's kind of, you know, the, the cameras are on the horsemen, uh, you know, barking at the referee in the ring. Then all of a sudden, somehow Sting and Koloff come back. The horsemen wind up walking away with their belts after the explanation is made. But wow, I mean, wow, the pops that were had in that match. You would have thought that that was a main event match if you looked at it just by itself. Yes, yes. Now, it's interesting because, like, this match actually ties into the next match a little bit. But uh, Jim Ross would explain if this went 22 minutes, it would have been a different outcome and all that. But Anderson and Tully, this is 1988. And they would drop these titles to the Midnight Express later this year in September of 88. And the next time we would see them after that, they would be lined not with J.J. Dillon, but with Bobby the Brain Heenan, and they would be known as the Brain Busters in the WWF. Um, the Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard always had issues with pay from Jim Crockett. They believed they were bringing in tons and tons of money for the promotion, and the pay was not on equal scale. Well, I don't think the finances were working so well for Jim Crockett promotions because it's the same year they sell to TBS. So, yeah. <laughs> so regardless of what this, whatever the story is, the uh, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard are out of the company. Uh, by the end of the year. So, um, yeah, that's the story with them. Right, and the, the, they're out of the company, and the company is sold. Yes, that's right. Now, the next match is contested for the United States Tag Team Championships. This was pretty common that they would have multiple tag titles like this. It's almost like you had a main event tag title and you had like a, a mid-card tag team title, right. but... The Midnight Express, Stan Lane and beautiful Bobby Eaton are challenging, uh, with Jim Cornette, by the way, are challenging the Fantastics, who are the champions, Bobby Fulham and Tommy Rogers. And uh, in this one, the United States Championships were promoted by Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW from 1986 through 1992. In 92, they became de deactivated. Dick Slater and the Barbarian, of all people, were the final champions. Now, various other promotions had U.S. tag titles. Mid-America, the WWWF had them, World Class in Texas. Even Billy, Billy Corgan's NWA today has the U.S. tag team titles. Oh, is that right? <laughs> so, so this is a, it's another one of those 
another one of those things. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, if, you know what? I, it's it's great that the tag team division was so healthy that yeah. you could have two kind of main event ish storylines going on. Two champions. You know, the, the fact that you if you could pr- healthily promote two sets of tag team champions. It sounds to me like you're doing some good business. You know, I don't know if they had Paul Heyman doing the books for them. You know, the company's about to go under, but that sounds like you've got a pretty healthy promotion in terms of talent. Sure, sure. Now, if the Fantastics win, they're going to get Jim Cornette. Ten, they're going to get ten lashes in on Jim Cornette. So, what they do prior to the match is they put Cornette in a straight jacket just to make sure that he adheres to the stipulation. The whole time they're putting the straight jacket on, Cornette is trying to pay off the referee. Uh, he's also concerned about his fancy red jacket that his mom gave him. So classic Cornette here. Uh, after they get the straight jacket on him, they put him in a shark cage and they suspend him to what Jim Ross says is 40 to 50 feet in the air. Now, often when you hear commentators talk about 10 foot ladders and 20 feet in the air and stuff like that. Those numbers are obviously not correct. As you see, like Hulk Hogan almost reaching up and touching the top of a steel cage when he's about six, two or whatever. Right. You know, it's not going to be 20 feet in this case though. I have to say, I think that Jim Cornette was suspended 40 or 50 feet in the air. This he was high up. Yeah. They kept uh, every time you, after they put him in the cage and the camera starts panning back to the ring, you see him going up and, you know, he's off the ground. He's in a little cage and he's still going up. He's still going. I'm like, all right, we get it. He's not getting out of there. And talk about ruining the aesthetic. As you said, you know, Cornette's in a red tux with tails. You know, he's got the, the ruffled kind of pink shirt on. Like he's got red shoes to watch and a gold cummerbund. I mean, he was, you know, dressed to the nines. And then they go and slap a straight jacket on him. But he's great for the part, you know. He's, oh, yeah, because he doesn't yeah. shut up the whole time. No, his mouth was running the whole time. <laughs> they they pan the cameras to the Maryland State Athletic Commission, which is a real thing. Uh, the you know, And they would come back in before the end of the night. So it's kind of good that they showed us here in scene two because we're going to need them by the time we get to, you know, scene seven or whatever right um but the maryland state athletic commission they actually fined aw ten thousand dollars in 2019 uh in 20 actually they find them in 2020 for a match that occurred in 2019 in this same arena the baltimore arena uh because of intentional blood in the john moxley kenny omega unsanctioned match at full gear AEW's first year in business, their second paper or third pay per view. Um, so this Maryland State Athletic Commission doesn't mess around, and for <laughs> for whatever reason, I, I actually don't think that they bladed in that 2019 match. I think that, but it was just obviously they were going to be bleeding, and <laughs> they didn't take any. You know, you throw people onto uh, tables of barbed wire, you're obviously not going to come up with no cuts. There's going to be some blood. <laughs> so yeah, so. Um, so the Maryland State Athletic Commission is a real serious commission and they can stop matches and things like that and introduce fines. So uh, they show us them here in scene two. They'll be really important towards the end of the end of the show. 
Um, we do see the Fantastics do the Fargo strut partway through this match, which is a uh, which is always fun. Yes. <laughs> you know that's what's interesting is I would have if you if you were to say to me, Ryan, Fargo strut's going to happen in this match. Well, who do you think is going to do it? I probably would have leaned towards the Midnight's because I kind of consider them more in line with that area of the country and they're they're the heels and that Man. seems to be more of a heelish thing to do but <laughs> but nonetheless we got it from the fantastics yeah and then man you see bobby in's leg drop in this match too his top rope leg drop is just fantastic i he's the best one i think i've, I've ever seen now i don't know how well he's walking around or anything or he right. was walking around it's past, i don't know i think but um we we get a 15 minute warning in this match as bobby fulton gets a hot tag and he goes wild uh fulton actually get he gets power slammed onto the concrete floor no mats around the ring here in this so yeah, Bobby goes the floor many times tonight, and yeah, it is just that bare concrete. It's so weird, right? Like how much the mats cost, you know? <laughs> but it goes to show you the the difference again in the presentation between what you'd see on the WWF and what you'd see here. WWF certainly looked more big time. Um, you know, it looked like they had a much cleaner presentation and everything. But um, but this this was the wrestling, so. <laughs> Bobby Ian would use a chain wrapped around his fist to get the pull, uh, the pinfall victory over Bobby Fulton. Uh, and then Eaton actually hid the chain in Fulton's pants or his trunks, which was a nice totally I totally yeah. missed that. At the, at the end of the match, when Eaton finds the chain, is surprised to find the chain in his own trunks. Uh, I had to I had to roll it back and watch that. I was like, son of a bitch, that, that's a hell of a move. Yeah. Now there's there was no official lashes on Jim Cornette, but the Fantastics do get their hands on him, and they do uh, use Tommy Young's belt to get some sort of unofficial lashes in on him. So yeah, <laughs> poor referee Tommy Young takes a bump in the middle of the match, then he gets you know almost undressed at the end of the match because they need a belt to whip Cornette. But uh, yeah, he certainly played his role in this match. Right now, I mentioned at the top the Midnight Express. Uh, that they were challenging for the United States champ tag team championships. They'd win them here. Uh, this was a title change. And now later this month, I mentioned, I, I mentioned now later this month, later in this year, I mentioned that Arn and Tully would drop the NWA world titles to the midnights. And that's what they, so that's what they did in September. And when they did the U uh, S tag titles would have to get vacated and they would actually go back to the Fantastics via a tournament win. So uh, apparently you couldn't hold both titles, the both the U.S. and the world. So that was why they had to uh, – they actually got stripped of the U.S. titles. But it keeps them from painting themselves into a corner like the WWE has done in the last year. But yes. I digress. <laughs> with tag titles. <laughs> Bob Cottle is with Jim Cornette, and Cornette is just screaming. That's pretty much the uh, summary there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nothing much to report there. Cornette just screams for a little while. They're trying to kill me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> what a piss. And a young Jim Cornette, too, is just, for some reason, just that much funnier because his voice is a few octaves higher. And uh, God, it always makes me laugh. And he's so skinny. 
you know, by the time he ever shows up in uh, in WWF, he I mean, he was going to be managing Yokozuna. So I guess he had a bulk up or something, or maybe he was just, you know, eating with Yoko. So he put on some weight, but he's real skinny when he was a young guy here. So the next match is the Tower of Doom. And I will attempt to explain the rules. It is a five on five match. Two men start in the top cage. I say top because there are three cages stacked on top of one another. The object is for every member of your team to go through the floor of the top two cages and then out the door of the bottom cage. When all of your members get out of the cage, you have won the match. In the bottom cage is Precious. Precious is the valet and real-life wife of Jimmy Garvin. So she is holding the key to the bottom cage. Yes. And the trap doors between levels of the cage are only open for, what, 10 or 30 seconds? Every two, two minutes, minutes, I think it was, there was a horn, and only then can the trap doors open. And the trap doors aren't really being held closed by anything other than, you know, the, the one between the top cage and the middle cage is being held together by a pulley system that looks like it's got, you know, your Most grandma's old clothesline on it. Yeah, most of the time the wrestlers actually open the doors themselves. Right, right. Yeah, and there's absolutely there's nothing holding the the one between the the middle cage and the the regular uh, yeah. mat. Uh, you know, the the bottom level. There's absolutely nothing holding that closed. So uh, it's, it's just an odd concept, an odd execution. And as I as I said to you in uh, in in uh, our, our pre discussion here. Once again, poor referee Tommy Young has to climb all the way to the top, sit outside the smallest and top cage, and there's nothing for him to hold on to. No. So his, his he's got the pulley system to quote unquote open the trap door in the smallest cage. And he's got that handle to hold on to. His hands are laced through the, the chicken wire, you know, fencing. And he, the whole thing is is rocking and rolling every time somebody, you know, there's a blow inside the cage. He looks terrified. And they didn't even build the poor bastard a handle to hold on to. I know. Crazy. Um, so the teams are Road Warrior Hawk, Road Warrior Animal, Dr. Death Steve Williams, Ronnie Garvin, and Jimmy Garvin. They're going up against Ivan Koloff, Kevin Sullivan, Al Perez, Mike Rotunda, and the Russian Assassin. We got Paul Ellering and Gary Hart on the outside. Uh, and this thing is a shit show. <laughs> Could not have said it better myself, sir. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go through it blow by blow. The whole thing takes 20 minutes. We start off with uh, Ivan Koloff and Ronnie Garvin start the match. Now, what's funny about this, so Jimmy Garvin and Precious uh, with Kevin Sullivan kind of opposite them, that's kind of the story we're all kind of keying off of. And so Jimmy Garvin comes into 
wrestling billed as Ronnie Garvin's brother. Now, in reality, Ronnie Garvin is his stepfather, which I think is hysterical. (laughs) And as far as I know, uh, and I could be wrong about this, maybe John, you would know. I I don't think Jimmy Garvin ever wrestled in the WWF. Are you aware? Yeah, I can't think of a time when he did, no. So not in a meaningful way, anyway. Uh, But he is a WWF Hall of, or WWE Hall of Famer as part of the fabulous Freebirds. Yes. His stepfather slash brother, (laughs) Ronnie Garvin, did wrestle in the WWF. And he even had a WrestleMania match. He is not in the Hall of Fame. I don't know what that tells you about the Hall of Fame, but I'm sure there's uh, there's something to be implied there. Sure, sure. Uh, Ronnie Garvin is, is an interesting figure. He was the NWA World Champion as of the preceding December. So, uh, so he's kind of coming off of that, and he's programmed way, 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 way down before um, before he ends up leaving the company, which is. Frankly, not much after this, which will again play in later as we talk about uh, the Wyndham and Dusty Rhodes match. But so this, like I said, this thing's a mess. Every two minutes we have somebody coming in and somebody trying. The same time that people are trying to come in, the other people are trying to escape down through the cages, and so this is a this is a mess. It's it it doesn't happen. Sometimes you got one person in a cage. Once they get to the bottom, there's no fighting there. They just walk out. You know, right. they just hurry up. And if and say there's three, it's three people in the bottom cage, and it's two from one team and one from the other. Well, once the once the two people leave, guess they're not going to stop the last guy from leaving. Right. So there, yeah, there, there is a scenario at one point where uh, one of the road warriors is down in the bottom, and it's two a hawk is at a two on one disadvantage. Uh, he's got Koloff and the Russian assassin. He beats the hell out of them and he walks out of the cage. And yeah. then 30 seconds later, they just stand up and walk out right behind him. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, the, so the bottom almost became uneventful. Now the, it ends Sullivan and, uh, and Garvin, Jimmy Garvin. They're kind of the last ones in. Ronnie Garvin escapes immediately, by the way. He escapes through the, the top cage immediately. In the next interval, he gets through the second cage and walks right out. He hardly has he hardly participates. Yeah. Um, maybe saving him for something else. So so Jimmy Garvin goes to escape the cage, and uh Sullivan just pushes him out, pushes him out, pulls the door shut, and locks himself in with precious. So, oh my gosh, now what are we going to do? So Sullivan is stalking Precious. And he's like, I've got to do something we probably can't talk about on the internet. And so what did they have to do? Jimmy Garvin and Road Warrior Hawk climb back up the ladders, back to the very top, and they go down through the cage <laughs> to save Precious. Yeah, and, and if, if we didn't talk about it specifically at the, the top of this segment... Yeah, the, the, there's no special, they didn't build any special way in, they didn't have any uh, hydraulic lifts or anything like that. There are telescoping Home Depot ladders, and that's how you get from the floor to 
the third cage. So yeah, there, there was no quick and easy way to get back up and go through these levels. And the very top cage, another problem, the very top cage was big enough barely for four people. Luckily, the match was kind of always moving because it was right. a two-minute interval because there was no action to call. I mean, right. th- I mean th- these guys were kind of like punching and selling, punching and selling, and that's that's about all you could do. Um, see Hell in a Cell 1998 if you, <laughs> you know. Uh, I can't imagine. I can't believe that nobody fell through these cages at the time, but whatever. Yeah, and and one, especially in the, the small cage on top, when the trap door opens, you have to get out of the way of almost half the cage. Yeah. Well, they're, you know, they're always jockeying for position and who gets that. And there's supposed to be a time limit on how long the, the, the Ten door seconds, is. Yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it's, as you said, at the very, at the very top, just garbage. It just yeah. a shit show. <laughs> it's similar to the Punjabi prison match in some ways where you have cage within a cage type of thing, but, but yeah. it is different. Um, and also similar in the case of uh, after you watch it, you say to yourself, what the hell were they thinking? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, at least they were smart enough to not really go back to it <laughs> too quickly anyway. Uh, I guess to close off the whole story with the Precious and all that, um, Precious would get abducted by Kevin Sullivan later in 1988. And uh, that would be her final appearance for the company for four years. So I guess she was abducted for those four years. And she'd come back to in 1992 to align herself with the Freebirds. So. Yeah, uh, Kevin Sullivan is the guy who absolutely would have some kind of dungeon to keep her in for four years. So I, I, that, that, that checks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it, so then we have Bob Cottle, who's just talking. He is just going on. He's recapping the match. You know, they got three cages to get rid of here at this point. So I guess that's what the whole point of that was. But the next match is Barry Windham, the United States champion, with executive director of the Four Horsemen, J.J. Dillon, defending against the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. The crowd loves Dusty. He's always such a hot baby face here. Uh, and they go nuts when he gets his hands on JJ earlier, early in the match. But tons yeah. of interference by JJ Dillon in this match. Uh, lots of work on the floor. Uh, and then it, at one point, Wyndham actually slams Rhodes, which I thought was something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the, the whole setup for this is that it's the mentor versus the mentee. He's trying, you know, he's trying to make Wyndham uh, Dusty. That is, is trying to make Wyndham see the the error of his ways by joining the Horsemen. And uh, meanwhile, Jojo Dillon, as uh, he's lovingly referred to by one of my favorites, uh, he's he's been trying to get rid of Dusty Rhodes from the world of wrestling in general since at least 1982 that I know of, because I've done, I had to do a little research on this. And here he is again, just doing everything in his power to ruin Dusty's day. Yes. They build the finish around the claw. The, it's the, uh, it's what Wyndham is using as sort of a submission finish. And so Wyndham gets it on him on Dusty and he Dusty's in there for a long time. Um, and then Dusty sort of climbs to the second rope, kind of switch the leverage. Um, and then Wyndham goes for a superplex from the second rope, but Dusty pushes him off. And when Dusty pushes Wyndham off, 
Wyndham hits Tommy Young and knocks Tommy Young, the referee, to the floor. Dusty tosses Wyndham to the floor as well, or tosses Wyndham, hits a big elbow, no referee in sight. We get the 15-minute time warning, and Dusty is standing there, and in comes Ronnie Garvin, and he KOs Dusty Rhodes, and that is a big Ronnie Garvin heel turn. Wyndham then pins Dusty with the claw. Because Dusty's unconscious. All he basically does is put his hand back on his head. <laughs> that's right, yes. So uh, Garvin is a former U.S. tag team, United States tag team champion with Wyndham. So they were allies in the past. This is July 10th. By August of this year, though, a month later, Garvin's gone. So this whole heel turn was really for, for not really. They really didn't get to do much, much with it. Uh, and then we see him in the WWF from November of '88 to November of 1990. Well, at least he got a, a nice briefcase full of JJ Dillon's money to hit the road with. That's right. He sure did. We do see that he has a nice discussion with JJ Dillon, flashing those pearly whites, and uh, he leaves with some money. So. Main event, NWA World Championship on the line. Ric Flair defending against Lex Luger. Um, I think this is peak Luger, right? I mean, he's a four, he's a former horseman by this point. And yeah, there's things that come later, right? There, there's, there's him walking out at Nitro. There's him slamming Yokozuna. There's probably some stuff during the whole WCW versus NWO stuff that you would say is kind of peak Luger. But I think right here is probably when he was the most believable as a top guy. I suppose. Yeah. And, and although, okay, I, I don't I don't go deep with Lex Luger. But in this moment, the, again, this is 1988, and I wouldn't really come to know Luger all that well until, you know, quite frankly, until – uh, the Yokozuna angle, really. And I knew he had come from WCW. I knew he had been a world champion there. But this is the thing in this moment that I feel like was the reason I never got on board with Lex Luger throughout his career is that he re I mean, he's got the physique. But other than that, there's no he almost has nothing that makes him unique, nothing that makes him him, you know, the, just, you know, okay, look, I, I'm, some people are going to roll their eyes because I'm going to sound like a fashion critic. He comes to the ring in a robe that looks so much like a Ric Flair robe. What, the first chance we get to see the back of it, I'm checking it out to see if there's a butterfly on it because it looks like the black and white or black and, you know, yeah. uh, silver butterfly famous Ric Flair robe. Then and Flair comes out in his gold robe and he is resplendent as always. He takes off his robe, Luger. He's wearing yellow trunks in what is you know essentially the height of Hulkamania over in the other company. He's wearing <laughs> yellow trunk. Like there's nothing that makes Lex Luger Lex Luger other than the physique and the torture rack. Right. Like it's like he's trying to borrow from everyone at the same time, and it leads to just not a fully fleshed out character if, right. to me. Yeah, I mean I've never been a Lex guy. I would I would agree with you that he's he is he is but this is this is the peak. 
But here's why I think it was the peak. They came off an, an, a hugely successful angle from the Clash of Champions, Miami Mayhem. It was the first, it was the third Clash of Champions. It was the James Knight Center in Miami. Great venue, by the way. Uh, and there's a famous scene where the four horsemen attack Lex Luger as he's arriving uh, to the venue. And Luger bleeds for the first time on television. We also see on the same show them signing their contracts on the Black Hawk yacht, which was docked in West Palm Beach. Um, so this vi- this very super hot angle of Luger bleeding uh, on Clash of the Champions, and it plays into this match. So the storytelling was pretty long term, I would say. In this, I mean, I mean, we're talking months here, right? So. Um, my favorite part of this match, though, is when Ric Flair on the outside of the ring shoves Tommy Young. Tommy Young immediately shoves Ric Flair back and then runs, dives under the bottom rope, and goes and stands behind Lex Luger. <laughs> I, I popped <laughs> huge for that spot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's little stuff like that that's beautiful in the wrestling world. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, the action would spill to the outside. Luger would smack his head on the floor, and then Dylan would push Luger into the ring post. Luger is busted open. They say it's his wound being reopened from Miami Mayhem. And uh, Luger, uh, then we see them start to have some sort of interaction with the Maryland State Athletic Commission. At the same time, Luger puts Flair up in the torture rack, and he's got him there. And he's got him what you would say would be dead to rights. And the bell rings. And Luger thinks he has won the world championship. We and think so Luger, does the whole building. Yes. <laughs> we think Luger has won the world championship. But it's that pesky Maryland State Athletic Commission that has called for the match to end due to the least excessive bleeding I have ever seen in a wrestling <laughs> match. Yeah, I, you know, I I was reading, uh, you know, the breakdown of this before I actually dove in and started watching it. And I saw that, you know, the main event was uh, ended by Dr. Stoppage due to blood. <laughs> Luger hits the post. Luger rolls back in. There's a power slam up to the torture rack. And I, I mean, if you're looking for the blood, you can barely see it. Yes. But you also see the uh, state commissioner come over to he gets out of his chair, comes over to ringside immediately when Luger rolls back in before the power slam, before the torture rack. And he, you know, he he's he's ta- he, he's gesticulating towards Tommy Young. He's not getting his attention. Tommy Young backs up to the ropes and he grabs him by the ankle, does the commissioner to get his attention, to get the match stopped. And that is that's the whole story of the match right there. What's crazy about this is I don't know the story behind this. What I know is obviously this was the desired finish because they indicated it the whole time. They made reference to the the beatdown of the Clash of Champions. But knowing what we know about the Maryland State Athletic Commission, they could have instituted a fine. They certainly could stop the match. Um, And I wondered, did did they play it up? Did they like? Did they bring the commissioner in on this, or did they just say, "Well, let's get Luger bloody, and then they'll call they'll call it"? 
I mean, was everybody in on it? I don't know. And I couldn't figure it out. But right. knowing how strict the commission has a history of being, yeah. especially in recent years, I was a little surprised that they went this way. Yeah. And it's it's obviously, you know, it's, I guess reality makes for some of the best theater sometimes. Uh, in what I, you know, I remember, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember during our discussions of the Tales of the Territory, there was one territory that was constantly getting fined and it kind of ruined the territory. How many times they got fined for blood and, you stampede. know, uh, other say that again with stampede. Yeah. Okay. Dead there you count. go. Yeah. So yeah. I, I remember how that was prominent in one of these territories. So, you know, maybe all of that rolling together and they said, Hey, you know, let's, we can make a storyline out of this and we don't have to do much selling because it is based very heavily in reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was an interesting show, The Great American Bash 1988. I I enjoyed watching it, a five-match show. Uh, that's really long, 20-minute endeavor we had to do with the Tower of Doom. Uh, but other than that, I thought the wrestling was solid. You got a great, a good main event with a dusty finish. Um, and then you actually had a dusty finish in the right. dusty match. <laughs> and then, you know, Tower of Doom was what it was. It was an attraction. Uh, you always get to see Midnight Express wrestle. That's fun. And then you got Sting and Nikita Koloff in the opener who were as over as anybody on the show. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've, I've, I got to be painfully honest. I wasn't overly excited. You know, like I was like, oh, yeah, let's let's do the Great American Bashes because that's, you know, that's the right thing to do for that time of the year and whatnot. But when I sat down to watch it, I was like, all right. Let's see what hot garbage they're going to roll out here. Cause you know, I'm thinking of that era. And again, I know nothing of this era. I know, you know, a couple of the main stars, but I've watched almost literally none of it. And I, I thought it was a quality show, especially for the era. Yeah. I think it holds up really well. And if you want to go back and watch it, you can. Um, these finishes probably wouldn't jive today, but. The wrestling is, is 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 good. I mean, think of it. It's watching WrestleMania four, which would have been a couple months before this, is frustrating because of all the countouts and the DQs and the double countouts or the double DQs and the time limit draw and all. Just a bunch of garbage on that show. Even though it's, admittedly, my favorite piece of hot garbage out there. Um, this show was much better from a wrestling standpoint. It's about two and a half hours, and it. Flew by. Yep. And I, I would say without a doubt, the time limit draw on this show far superior to the time limit draw on WrestleMania 4. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> the worst match in Jake Roberts and Rick Rude's wrestling history was that. Yes. The two guys who had a hell of a feud together, they put on a stinker. They did. They did. All right. That said, tomorrow we're going to be back uh, talking about Great American Bash 1989. So uh, that said, the Daily Wrestling News Show is a Minutes to Bell Time production. Find out more at MinutesToBellTime.com. Today's episode was recorded by Ryan Joy and John DeCani. Subscribe to the Daily Wrestling News Show on your podcast player of choice and join us in the Daily Wrestling News Show Facebook group. We'll see you tomorrow for Great American Bash 1989. See ya.